As we say to you each week, you can take your Bibles and open them, either the Pew Bibles there before you or your own. In the Pew Bible, you'll find John chapter 5 on page 1058. And again, we always encourage you to have God's Word open and to be following along through the sermon that you might give your attention to the reading and the preaching of God's Word. It is a joyous welcome to all of you this morning on this day of resurrection when we last gathered together in this room. If you were here on Good Friday evening, you know that we left in silence contemplating the sufferings and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And we come this day on the first day of the week as the church has done now for almost 2,000 years, passing from death to life, as we rejoice together in our Savior's defeat of death and his victory over the grave through the resurrection, which we celebrate every single Lord's Day, morning and evening, as we gather together as his people in worship. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. How important is the resurrection, then, of our Lord Jesus Christ? How important is it? I think as we gather here this morning, we know its importance, of course. If you're familiar with Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of the significance and importance of the resurrection there being absolutely essential if Christianity is going to mean anything. Here are the words he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, that is, if there is no resurrection, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now this is very significant, what Paul says here. Christianity is meaningless if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But the Bible goes even further than that. It says even more. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the very teachings of Jesus, yes, even the entire Bible itself are worthless. They are meaningless if Jesus was never raised from the dead. What the resurrection does is to confirm all that the Bible teaches as true. It speaks of Jesus himself as one whom God the Father has vindicated. It says that everything he has done, his work as our Savior, is accepted by the Father, and that all that he taught while he ministered in this earth is indeed true. So, is the Bible worth taking seriously? Well, you know the answer as well. It's been said that if the resurrection did not happen, then nothing that Jesus has done matters. Again, it is meaningless and it cannot save anyone. And nothing he spoke should be heeded by us or anyone. Even his death on that cruel cross, which we meditated upon this past Good Friday, is nothing apart from the resurrection. Nothing that Jesus has ever done if he was not raised from the dead means anything. And the Bible is not to be taken seriously then. Even 
even his death, meaningless. But that, of course, is not what the Bible says, is it? 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Great indeed, as Paul writes to Timothy, this great mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the Father's vindication of Jesus. This language, vindicated by the Spirit, is a word there, vindicated, is I think rightly translated, but it's the same word that we use when we speak of justified. He was justified by the Spirit. It means that he was vindicated. Everything he taught, everything that he did was pronounced to be true. It was his vindication in the resurrection, the overturning of the world's indictment against Jesus as a man guilty and deserving of death. The resurrection declares that he was who he said he was, an innocent lamb led to the slaughter to suffer and to die in the place of sinners. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Romans in chapter 4, says this, again, regarding the resurrection of Jesus, it will be counted, verse 25, to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only for the vindication and the justification of Jesus and everything that he taught, everything that he did, but it is the grounds of our justification as well, of our righteousness before God, even now, as we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So yes, yes, brother and sister, the Bible is worth taking seriously. Every word of it, every comfort, every rebuke, every warning, every promise, it is worth taking seriously. It is the very word of God. And it is true because God raised Jesus from the dead. I'm reminded of what the Father spoke of the Son on the day of his transfiguration. Remember those great words as the voice came out of the cloud, Luke 9 records for us, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. So this morning, we want to listen to him. Listen to him through the words recorded for us in John chapter 5, regarding the life that Jesus alone gives. You already have your Bibles in front of you opened, I trust, to John chapter 5. Please stand as we read these verses, verse 19 through 29. John chapter 5, verse 19 through 29. This is God's holy word. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for your word Because you have raised your son and vindicated him and all that he taught, your word is precious to us. We receive it as the word of life. Bless it now to our hearing and growth, we pray. In the name of Jesus, who is that living, eternal word, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible tells us that we live in a world, despite what it appears to our eyes, that is characterized by death. Not trying to be depressing this morning, but this world is filled with death. That is really what it is. This world is filled with death. Death entered the world, of course, at the fall. When God said to our first parents, Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of it, on the day that you disobey me and my commandments, on that day you shall surely die. And so from that moment, when they first disobeyed the Lord, death entered the world and death impacts everything around us. From the first sin for which the wages are death until now, death is the one thing that is true of all that we see. Human beings are living corpses, dead in trespasses and sin by nature. They appear to possess life, and in fact, scientifically, we would agree that there is life, physical life, but the death of which God spoke was a death of separation from God, a death that deserves ultimately his eternal wrath and judgment. So human beings, all of those around us, apart from Jesus, and we ourselves, prior to our conversion, were walking corpses. Think of the world and all that we see around us, marked by death. Everything moving towards decay and corruption. Read through our weekly list of prayer items, and the signs of death and decay are all throughout it, hanging, as it were, even over those We love because this world is characterized by death. Think of the wisdom of men, the folly of their thinking. Think of the natural mind of man, and we see nothing but death and decay. Think about the reasoning of natural man in the day in which we live. Vain philosophies, rejection of the truth of God in the simplest of things, 
regarding issues like gender and marriage and all sorts of things. Those vain, empty philosophies and ideas are a sign that death is working not only in the body of mankind, but in the mind of man as well, and his will and emotions. Death clings to everything. It marks the world in which we live. But praise be to our God, for in Jesus he has entered into this fallen world and he has brought life, life abundant and free. I think the Apostle John, perhaps more than any other New Testament writer, saw and understood this so very clearly. If you just do a cursory study of how often John speaks of life, life that is in Jesus that we now possess, you will discover both in his gospel and in his three letters that he wrote that John was absolutely consumed with the idea of life and life in Jesus. For instance, let me go through it very quickly. You need just to listen. John 1.4, he begins his gospel this way. In him, that is in Jesus, who is the word of God, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal everlasting life. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Simon Peter in John 6, 68 answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go as the others left? You alone have the words of eternal life. John 10, verse 28, I give them, that is, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John eleven twenty five to Mary and Martha, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 17, 3, a prayer that we'll continue to study in the weeks to come. This, Jesus said, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, Jesus The life was manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us in Jesus. And then 1 John 5, and this is the testimony, you heard these verses earlier, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I think the most interesting of all of these, as John writes both his gospel and his three letters, is that he tells us the very reason and purpose that he's writing them. And in both cases, he identifies that the reason is that we might know Jesus who is life and that we might have that life in his name. 
John 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then 1 John chapter 5, again, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have, possess, right now, eternal, everlasting life. And so John, as he writes in this section in chapter 5, writes very much about that same theme as Jesus defends his own divinity and focuses his comments, his thoughts upon his ability, his power to give life to those whom he wills. Life, life in the midst of death. Life for those who believe in the midst of death. Now turn again to these verses. I trust it is still open. These are powerful verses. They are verses that deserve, as we so often say in sermons, many more sermons regarding the text itself. But our focus this morning is on what these verses say about Jesus possessing and giving life to those whom he wills. J.C. Ryle says that these verses, beginning here in verse 19, begin one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. They show us the Lord Jesus Christ asserting his own divine nature, make no mistake about it, his unity with God the Father and the high dignity of his office. You may run into people who say, you know, I have never read in the Bible any place where Jesus claimed to be God. That is folly. It is everywhere in the New Testament, in the language and the verses or the, the, the speeches of Jesus. It is especially here in John chapter 5. Now, you may be familiar with the immediate context. Jesus had healed a, a man born crippled for 38 years, living that life. Jesus had healed this man. The Jewish leaders, in response, accused him of violating the Sabbath because he healed the man on the Sabbath. In verse 16, if you look at that with me, Jesus raises the stakes, as it were. They're simply saying, you have no right to do this on the Sabbath. And Jesus brings in this whole idea about the Father ever working. This is what he says. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he said he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, verse 17, my Father is working until now. And I am myself working. Here, a clear claim by Jesus that he and the Father are one. He raises the stakes, not an issue any longer about what you can do or not do on the Sabbath. Certainly works of necessity and mercy are permissible on the Sabbath as we seek to faithfully observe it. And Jesus was doing the very thing the Father does as he sustains and continues his work in this world. Now, most commentators believe as this continues, when we get to verse 19, the scene most likely, and it can't be proven admittedly, but most likely it appears to be a scene where Jesus is actually standing formally before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin can be and has been compared to what we would call the Supreme Court of our nation. This is the highest judiciary of the Jewish people in the time in which Jesus lived made up of Sadducees and of Pharisees, divided on their various views of the resurrection, for instance. 
But if you look at verse 19, it says, John writes, So Jesus said to them, Now it could simply be those who were there present with him, the Pharisees who had come, if you will, and confronted him about him healing the man. But it has long been believed that this is a formal defense of Jesus before the religious leaders. And if it is, then it contains even more a profound teaching and defense of who he really is. And notice then with me three things as we work through this passage together. Again, it's worthy of further study. There are deep, deep things here that we won't be able to touch on this morning. But let me highlight first what Jesus says regarding the unity of Father and Son. This is a great passage to talk about the Trinity, if you will, and how the Trinity is to be understood. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. We would be wrong to understand this as some sort of subservience or submission to the Father uh, in their relationship as God, one God in three persons. We would be wrong to say that the Son here is laying aside, if you will, his own purpose and will in favor of his Father's. Our God is one God existing in three persons, one in substance, equal in power and in glory. There is no division within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no separate will of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but all are united together, one in substance, equal again in power and in glory. And Jesus says that they are united in their work. What this is is not an offering of some sort of teaching that we could say that the Son subordinates himself to the Father with respect to who they are as God, but rather it is an acknowledgement that everything that the Father does, the Son does as well. They are one in will. The work and unity of the Father and the Son is evident in this passage. The Son will do nothing of his own accord as if he is free to disagree with his Father with respect to who they are together as the Godhead. But rather he says and he acknowledges that the Son only does what the Father himself is doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Because their will is one. And so it's not surprising as the Father continues to work in the world in which he has made, continues to sustain it by his power, continues in his providence to work his works in this world, that Jesus the Son, as he appears on the earth, would do the very same thing that the Father does. They are united in their work. The Son is no less than the Father. He and the Father, again, are one in will and purpose, working together with one aim and one purpose determined by the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice they're not only united, as it were, in their work, what it is that they do, but they are united as well in their love. Here the emphasis of the Father's love, verse 20, to the Son. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel the love that exists within the trinity between the father 
And the Son and the Spirit is something the Scriptures speak of in many different places. In fact, John himself in his first letter will will talk about this love that exists within the Trinity, the intra-Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the wonder, John says in 1 John 1, of our salvation is that we as fallen sinners redeemed by the mercy of God in Christ are brought into, welcomed into that intra-Trinitarian love, if you will. The experience of that love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is something that in God's amazing grace, he has welcomed us in. Father and Son are united in all that they do in their work and in their love. The language here, I I like the language, as one commentator says, it's almost a picture of the, the way our earthly fathers and we ourselves, perhaps with our children, delight to in invite our children as we're working on projects that they have no knowledge of and invite them into that to show them what we're doing, to teach them all that we're doing. There's there's something of that image here as the father delights in his love for the son to, to show him, reveal to him, as it were, what he is pleased to do and to take great delight in doing that. We're going to see a lot more of this intra-Trinitarian love between father and son and spirit as we continue our study in John 17 of our Savior's high priestly prayer We see it very clearly there of that great love and of their unity of work and of love uh, that we see here in these verses. And so the first thing we see here, and it's really the foundation of everything then that is spoken in these verses, and that is the unity of the Father in the Son in their work and in their love for one another. But secondly, notice that Jesus references, especially in verse 20, That there are greater works that he will show him so that you, that is the Pharisees, all of the people will in fact marvel. Now what are these greater works? Well, the, the work at hand, of course, is the healing of the man who for 38 years was an invalid and Jesus healed him. He restored his body. That itself is a marvelous miracle, but there are greater works Jesus refers to here and the text goes on to tell us. And there are really two, as you heard the passage read. The two works referenced here are the raising of the dead and the authority committed to Jesus to judge the world. The raising of the dead and authority to judge. And for the rest of this passage, these are the two lines that Jesus develops in his defense of his divinity. One writer said that the rabbis have a great saying Three keys the Holy One blessed be he has retained in his own hands and not entrusted to the hand of any messenger, namely the key of rain, the key of childbirth, and the key of revival of the dead. Now that's interesting. God alone can bring rain, of course. Remember the miracle in the times and days of Elijah? God alone opens and closes the womb, and so the key of childbirth belongs to him alone. But it's the third key that they note, which is really the focus of our study this morning. The key of the revival of the dead, the raising of the dead, of giving life to that which is dead. To give life is uniquely 
the action and the work of God. What Jesus is saying in these verses, as these two greater works will be revealed that they might marvel, is to give life is the unique work of God. Jesus, because he himself gives life, is God. Remember, this is a defense of Jesus before the religious leaders. He's showing them that he has a right to claim, and it's not blasphemous for him, to claim that he and God are one, that God is his father and he his unique son. Notice a little bit later in these verses, the whole focus here is that the son may be honored, that all, verse 23, may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. These works are being done. These works of raising the dead and of being committed to the judgment on the last day. These two great works which are committed to the son are works that are intended to honor and to exalt the son. Even as the father is exalted through them as well. So again, you see their unity. What exalts the Father exalts the Son. What exalts the Son exalts the Father. A little bit later in John's Gospel, in John chapter 11, you remember this from two weeks ago, as Pastor D. Benedictus shared with us the very purpose of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He told us before the people, before he called Lazarus forth, that the whole purpose is that he might be glorified before the people that he might be honored. Again, we need to understand that for people who say, listen, I I like God, I love God, I want to serve God, I believe in God, but this Jesus, this Jesus I can't possibly believe in. We can't say that because of their unity together as father and son. We can't say it because to dishonor the son is in fact to dishonor the father. To reject the son as the Pharisees did is to reject the father himself. And so these greater works will prove Jesus's divinity, his power, especially to give life to those whom he wills. And that then leads us to the focus of life, life in and through the son now. And that's really where this passage takes us, both in the giving of life itself as well as in the judgment, because the judgment here is referred to as a resurrection unto life with respect to those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Life is only found in and through the Son of God. J.C. Ryle again writes in his commentary regarding the fact that only God raises the dead, only God gives life, only God makes alive, says this, life is the highest and greatest gift that can be bestowed. It is precisely that thing that man with all of his cleverness can neither give to the work of his hands nor restore when it is taken away. But life, we are told, is in the hands of the Lord Jesus to bestow and to give at his discretion. Dead bodies and dead souls are both alike under his dominion. He alone has the keys of death and hell. In him is life. He is the life. You see, the power, according to the scriptures, to give life and to take it away belongs exclusively to God. Deuteronomy 32, a passage not read earlier, but 
the words of God. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. You see, it belongs only to God. That's why in his defense, he's highlighting these things because he's defending his divinity before these religious leaders. Verse 25 and 26 are very important with respect to this idea. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And note this, and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, the source of life being God himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Why? How? Because Jesus is God. One in substance, equal in power and glory, both possessing in themselves life. What Jesus is referring to here, of course, would have reference to the raising of Lazarus just a few chapters later. When he speaks from uh, or before the tomb and he calls Lazarus to come forth. You've heard it before, but it is true. If Jesus had not said Lazarus come forth and only said come forth, you know what would have happened. Everyone who was dead would hear his voice and come forth from the grave. In fact, we see the the echo of this, even in the very death of Christ, verses read Friday night as we went through the sufferings and death of our Savior. It's always been the most interesting of passages to me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 52. That when Jesus died, and when the curtain from top to bottom was torn, an indication that God himself had brought an end to all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, Matthew alone records for us that the tombs were opened as a sign of life that would flow from Jesus Christ. And the dead who were in those tombs, who were united to Jesus Christ by faith, rose from their tombs and went into the city and were seen by many. It was just a foreshadowing of the fact of what Jesus here himself says, that all who hear the words or the voice of the Son of God will be raised, will in fact live. Now the real important point of this verse or this passage with respect to life is that Jesus says that it is now here. It's not merely a reference to what he will do with Lazarus or what he will do with others that he raises from the dead. It's a reference to our being dead in trespasses and sins and the new life that he brings as we hear his voice and as we believe what he says. The focus here, I believe, is not merely on the body, but on the soul as well, on the spiritual life that is ours through Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this is a present possession right now for everyone who has heard his voice and who has believed in him. You see these works coming together, even in the judgment itself. Do not marvel, verse 28, at this, 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This is clearly a reference to the judgment and resurrection at the end of the ages. And Jesus himself says they will hear his voice and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Anytime Jesus speaks of our salvation with respect to his work, he always speaks with respect to grace, that we are saved by grace alone, as Ephesians 2 reminds us, not by works. But when he speaks of judgment, because there is a judgment of both believers and unbelievers alike, we will stand and give an account of all that we have done in the flesh, not that we might earn from God anything, for that is secure for us in Jesus Christ. But we will receive rewards according to God's judgment on that day. And the wicked will be judged by their works and the measure of his perfect law. And they will be found wanting and they will enter into everlasting judgment and to hell itself. The point Jesus makes cannot be denied. It is abundantly clear in these verses. Because he is God... Because he and the Father are one, because he has given by the Father greater works to do, including the giving of life to all whom he wills, that this life is found in him and given by him to all who hear, who hear his word, who believe in him, that they too, even now, have possessed everlasting life. Verse 24 is key. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. As we begin to plan for vacation Bible school, that's always been one of our verses, right? One of our verses as we hear it read, we remember those days as we were learning. He is passed from death unto life, no longer characterized merely by death, but now by life, which is an everlasting life and connects us to the world to come. Well, As we think of these things, you know the application is right here in the passage itself, isn't it? These verses themselves, as we give our attention to what Jesus says, as the Father said, This is my beloved Son, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Listen to him. We've listened to him in these verses. We've heard what he said. And so let me say to all of you here this morning, first to those who perhaps maybe here because it's Easter, you're here with family, or maybe you're here as someone who's here every week and you've never trusted, you've never looked to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your life is characterized, and no one needs to tell you, by death itself. It's everywhere. It clings to you. It clings to us like garments that we wear day after day. To those outside of Christ this morning who have never come to profess faith in Jesus, there are really two things to note in this great text. First comes from, again, verse 24. One writer calls it one of the greatest invitations in all of the Bible. And it really is, if you look at the words again, truly, truly, this is Jesus himself speaking. I say to you, whoever hears my word, And believes him who sent me has eternal life. You know, Moses, as he was coming to the end of his time, 
In the passage read earlier from Deuteronomy, remember what he said. He said, this day I have set before you life and death. I've set it before you, life and death. The greater Moses, the one greater than Moses, the greater prophet than Moses, speaks the same thing in these verses. I have set before you this day, even in this very hour as you sit here before me, before the Lord himself, he has set before you life and death. Death is obvious, it's everywhere, it clings to us again like the garments we wear. But life is found in Jesus, and God has given to the Son the right to give life to whomever he wills, and he is pleased to give life to all of those who hear his word and who believe him who sent him. He's pleased to give it right now, everlasting life, and all the benefits that come with that life, the full pardon and forgiveness of all of our sins, a righteousness that is not our own, that is won for us by Jesus Christ so that we might stand before God, blameless in his sight, strength and grace for every trial, health in all things with respect to God's life in us. All of these things are the promise of God in Jesus Christ, and Jesus holds it forth, as it were, with an invitation to come, to hear his word and to believe in him. But secondly, and as so often true in the Bible, along with the invitation and the call to come, which God himself by the Spirit works in men's hearts, there is added to it so often a warning of judgment to come, a warning of what happens when we reject the invitation of Jesus, if you will. And that warning is there in verses 28 and 29, a warning that Jesus says, you know, there's going to be a resurrection to all who hear his voice, to all on that day. The hour is coming when he will call out, not a specific name, but simply say, arise, and all will be raised. The dead will give up, and Hades will give up the dead. The sea will give up its dead. And all will come and immediately be joined to their bodies and will stand before the Lord of glory and give an account. And Jesus can't be any more clear to any of us here this morning that that resurrection will be one of two for all of us here this morning. It will either be a resurrection of life where the life which we possess now is simply continued through all eternity or it will be a resurrection of judgment. My friends, this morning as you hear these things, you hear the invitation of Jesus, perhaps the Spirit even now is calling you to hear his word, to believe in him, and to follow him, that you might be among those raised in the resurrection of life and not those raised in the resurrection of judgment. So an invitation a warning. But to those who are believers here this morning on this Easter day, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, as the church so often from the very beginning gathered with great joy, remember this morning what Christ has done for you and who you are in him as those who have heard his word and believed him. You right now possess eternal life. You are life in the midst of death. That's who you are. 
Right now, you are life in the midst of death. Every single place you go, you take the life of Jesus and the light of Jesus to all that you interact with, to all that you come before. I have, Paul says, been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. You and I are life living in the midst of death all around us. Think of the conversations you'll have this afternoon with unbelieving family members and friends. Perhaps God will give you a moment, a little bit of time to share the hope and the life that you have in Jesus. And perhaps in the sharing of that, he would be pleased to cause them to hear his word and to believe. Think in every encouragement that you have to give a defense of your faith, of what it is that you believe regarding all of the things that this world puts before us. You have an opportunity to speak words of life into the chaos and the absurdity of death all around us. You and I, as followers and lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are those in whom Christ lives and shines forth for all to see. He is the light of life. He is light itself, life itself. And he has been pleased through the witness of his people who live as those who are alive in the midst of death. He has been pleased to bring many to himself as he calls to them, and they hear him and they believe. Someone asked me this week, if I was going to preach again from a text that I preached on back in 2001, it was the kind of a theme in the beginning of the year, remember? That first Easter that we spent together as a congregation after my arrival to serve as your pastor at Village. The text I preached from then was from John chapter 20. We looked at Jesus' interaction with Mary at the empty tomb, and we saw a preview of the glory that is to come. But I decided not to do that but instead to focus our thoughts on these verses from John 5. But there was a great illustration I want to end with, which I think really encourages us on this Easter morning. It comes from Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the predecessor, of course, to Dr. Boyce at 10th Presbyterian Church. And he was great at illustrations, has a great book on illustrations, drew from many areas of life. And I love this one, and I used it then, and I'll use it here. In a certain city, a building fell because the foundation caved into an empty tomb. It was unknown, and it was hidden. If men built a building with a hole as a foundation, they would be fools. But God, who hangs the earth upon nothing, can do otherwise. The church of Jesus Christ has as its foundation the emptiness of the tomb of her Lord. If his tomb had not been emptied, there would have been no church. But Christ is risen, and the empty tomb becomes our most secure foundation. That is so true. How important is the resurrection? How important it is the God's word, Jesus' teaching, You see, it's of infinite importance. It is the foundation upon which our faith and our life is built. And that foundation is most secure. Because in Jesus and in him alone, we have life. 
Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father, you have called us as your people to be life and light in this world. And that life and that light is not of ourselves. But it is Jesus who gives life, who lives his life through us. Would you bless us to that end that we might be light and life to all that we speak to today, to all that we interact, even among ourselves, that we together might rejoice in all that is ours in him. And Father, we pray for those even here this morning, perhaps listening, who have never come to understand or to know or to hear and believe the words of Jesus. He still speaks today. He speaks now. His voice goes out. By your spirit, enable those who have never heard to hear and those who have never believed to believe. And in hearing and in believing, grant to them everlasting life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our final hymn is taken as well from that songbook, which you, I trust, still have near you. And we'll sing together our final hymn, the Resurrection Hymn, number 53. Please stand as we sing.